As we continue in 1 John, we arrive at this passage that addresses the issue, the continuing issue of false teaching. So as we begin this morning, imagine the following scenario. A preacher, myself or someone else, stands before this congregation and communicates false teaching. And here's how he goes about doing it. He brings his Bible on stage. He's well-dressed, theologically educated. He preaches a sermon from the Bible and even sprinkles in additional Bible verses to reinforce his main point. His illustrations and applications seem to be relevant and on point with the text that he's preaching from. Is it possible that someone like this could in fact be a false teacher? And the answer is, you church must know your Bibles. Because it is very possible that all of the things that I just said could describe someone who is a false teacher. Someone who steps into the pulpit, theologically educated, well-dressed, relevant, current, uses even the Bible, and yet he could still be a false teacher. Would it be possible in our midst for us to fall prey to false teaching? Therefore, that's why we constantly talk about the importance of knowing God's Word, and we will talk more about that today as we work through this text. In the early 2000s, some of you will remember, there was a movement that took place predominantly within the church within America known as the Emergent Church Movement. Familiar with that? Some of its key figures were men like Rob Bell, Brian McLaren, They appealed to a group of people who were looking for, quote, a different way of doing church. And on paper, a different way of doing church was very appealing and very attractive to a lot of people. They attracted many young people to their churches who were desiring spirituality and desiring a church much different from the type of church that they grew up in. Many of their books and sermons became very popular and they emphasized within this movement a new kind of Christianity. Rob Bell, who probably many of you know of, this is what he wrote in one of his books. He said, the most powerful things happen when the church surrenders its desire to convert people and convince them to join. It is when the church gives itself away in radical acts of service and compassion, expecting nothing in return, that the way of Jesus is most vividly on display. Now, on face value, many parts of that quote sound really, really good. We all should be participating in radical acts of service and compassion with no strings attached. But should we really desert The desire to see people surrender to Christ and convert and be part of our churches? That's one of the movements that took place in the early 2000s. I can't help but think of what Jesus says in Mark's gospel. The very first words that Mark presents to us, Jesus as saying in that gospel, which is the earliest gospel that we have on record, Jesus says, repent Excuse me, I messed that up. He says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. 
So as I read the Gospels, it seems like even though we should be all about doing radical acts of compassion for Jesus, we should never forget that Jesus himself was concerned with converting people, moving people from darkness to light, reconciling them through his own life to a holy father. So as we work our way through this text that Sandra just read for us today, three truths to walk away with. Number one, acknowledge the reality of false teaching. Number two, trust the Holy Spirit's role in discerning truth. And then number three, submit to the authority of God's word. Number one, acknowledge the reality of false teaching. Number two, trust the Holy Spirit's role in discerning truth. And number three, submit to the authority of God's word. John begins this passage, once again, referring to his audience as children. This is not a demographic description representing all of those birthed through the age of 12, but it's a pastoral usage that John uses. It's a term of endearment that we have talked about. He is indicating his love and his care for the sheep that God has entrusted to him. He views these people as his spiritual children. And John reminds them in this passage that it is the last hour Of course, this doesn't mean that it literally was the last hour on earth because we're all still here. But it is a reference to the fact that Jesus' return is closer today than it was yesterday. As Christians, we now joyfully anticipate the return of Christ to collect his bride. So in that regard, we are living In the last days, in the same way that John and Peter and Paul were. We live on this side of the life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. That means all that is left is Jesus' triumphant return. So yes, brothers and sisters, we are living in the last days in that sense. And John assumes that his readers have heard about the Antichrist. Now, in this text, we have to distinguish between Antichrist singular and Antichrists plural. Because he says many Antichrists plural have come. In early Christian teaching, there was a clear distinction between the singular Antichrist and the many Antichrists. We don't have time to read all the passages today. 2 Thessalonians 2, 3-10, Revelation 13, Matthew 24, Mark 13. These are all passages that talk about the end of the age. So there is one big or one singular, if you will, antichrist. But there are also many antichrists. Many of which John is talking about in this very passage. The antichrists were those... In John's community, the churches that he was writing to, who were trying to separate themselves from the church and take authentic believers in Christ along with them. These antichrists were the false teachers that we have been studying about since we began studying this book. Those that denied that Jesus was God in the flesh. Those who were denying that they struggled with sin once they were in Christ. These are the antichrists that John is addressing primarily in this 
passage. Now, what do we know about these figures? Well, look at verse 19. We're told, they went out from us, but they were not of us, John says. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. What is John saying here? These Antichrist figures at one time were a part of the community. They were a part of the churches in John's community. But leaving the church proved that these Antichrists, in fact, were not Christians. Because John says if they were Christians, they wouldn't have left the church to begin with. We're not given a ton of detail about what happened within the context of the letter. We don't know about the split, how the church handled it, what consequences arose as a result of the split. But we can infer definitely from the letter itself that the split was the church's belief about Jesus. That is what the church split over. One of the primary ways, brothers and sisters, that we can identify false teaching either among us or in other churches or ministries that we hear about is what people believe about Jesus Christ. That's that's it. What does a person believe about Jesus? And since Jesus fulfills all of the law and the prophets, a false teacher would be anyone who has authority over a group of people who contradicts the teaching of God's word, who contradicts what the Bible teaches us about Jesus. So in my very limited experience, here's how I've often seen this play out amongst people who once claimed to be followers of Christ and then branch out and become false teachers. Oftentimes in our culture, it sometimes looks like this. It always begins, number one, with usually a pretty good motive. And that motive is an attempt to reach more people with the gospel. Which I'm saying, that is a great motive. To want more people to come to faith in Christ is a pure and sincere motive. But here's what happens. In that attempt to reach more people with the gospel, a teacher, oftentimes a false teacher, will begin to accommodate the gospel to the culture. That's how it begins. And then oftentimes a false teacher will do a deep dive into some historic orthodox Christian doctrine. And they will study it hard and at length. And amazingly, almost every time they come out from their deep study, guess where their view aligns? The view of the predominant mainstream culture. It almost always happens that way. So they come out on the other side of that deep dive into whatever historic orthodox belief that they choose to study, whether it be gender, sexuality, marriage, creation, whatever doctrine it is that they choose to deep dive into and study. They almost always come out on the other side of that with some new revelation, some new teaching, some new nugget that faithful Christians for over 2,000 years just missed. And in the passage here in 1 John, these false teachers prove 
that because they went out from us, John says, it proved that they ultimately are not of us. What I want to encourage you with this morning is to be grateful and rejoice and celebrate that the gospel revealed to us in God's word is old. It is ancient. It has remained the same for over 2,000 years. And that's a beautiful truth. In fact, before the foundation of the world even, this was always God's plan to redeem a people to himself by the sending of his son to live the perfect life that we were incapable of living so that any that repent of their sin and believe in faith can be reconciled to a holy God. That was the plan before the foundation of the world. That is not new revelation. It will never change. But in reality, even though it's an old, ancient, and stable truth, if you really begin to think about it, you realize how exciting it is, how innovative it actually is, how relevant it actually is, because all people want their sin to be dealt with, whether they admit it or not. Everyone wants their sin to be dealt with. But so many people choose to deal with it in all of the ways that it cannot actually be forgiven instead of Jesus himself. So number one, we have to acknowledge in this age that we live in with so much access to sermons and online teaching and books and podcasts that false teaching is a reality. But number two, we must trust the Holy Spirit's role in discerning truth. Look at verse 20. John says, But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. This idea of anointing takes us back all the way into the Old Testament. When Aaron and his sons were anointed as priests with oil, then David is anointed as king of Israel. They used oil to anoint men that were set apart to God for a special purpose. This anointing in 1 John, though, is a reference to the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity that Jesus discussed at length in John's Gospel in chapter 16. So I'm actually going to read this morning, if you want to turn there, John chapter 16, verses 7 to 15, to help us understand how the Holy Spirit helps us discern truth. John chapter 16, beginning in verse 7. Nevertheless, this is Jesus talking, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. That's the Holy Spirit. But if I go, I will send Him to you. And when He comes, He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in Me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see Me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you. 
but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth, for He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify Me, for He will take what is Mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is Mine, therefore I said that He will take what is Mine and declare it to you. So let's review from this passage what the role of the Holy Spirit is in our lives. Number one, verse 8 tells us, convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Number two, guide believers into all truth. We find that in verse 13. Number three, glorify both the Father and the Son, Jesus, in verses 14 and 15. Look again at verse 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, Jesus says, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. Jesus is saying in this passage, it is better for his disciples if he goes away. Because they will then have his spirit inside of their heart rather than simply standing next to them. Do you understand the importance of the spirit? He is in your heart. As you navigate the Christian life, you must remember that you are not doing it alone. Jesus' spirit resides in you. This is particularly important when it comes to discerning truth. We must first understand that the Bible is our source of truth. And as we read God's word... The job of the Holy Spirit is to speak in and through those words to give our hearts an assurance that we can trust God's word. That's what happens. There is something supernatural happening when you as a believer read God's word. The Holy Spirit is assuring you, encouraging you, and helping you to understand that what you read is in fact God's word. So when we encounter false teaching, or even if we think the teaching might be false, maybe you leave today and think I'm a false teacher. The Holy Spirit will drive you to the Word of God. And you will align the Word of God with the teaching that you just heard. Even though it's great to go to a pastor or parents or the Gospel Coalition website or Desiring God or some other website to help you discern whether or not there is true or false teaching, we should always go straight to the source of all truth. Right here. Do the hard work of discerning truth yourself by using the Word of God as the tool by which we evaluate all teaching. So how would this work practically? Let's say, for example, you're sitting in a church service one day, or some Bible class, and the teacher says something along the lines of, it's impossible to have peace in this world. And you think to yourself, I'm not really sure if that's true. So you begin digging through your Bible, and you come to Romans 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So it could be that perhaps the teacher didn't clarify exactly what he meant, 
Or it could be that he actually doesn't believe peace is possible in this world. And if he believes that, he's a false teacher. Because Paul tells us we have peace with God through Jesus Christ. It is possible to have peace in this world, but only through Christ. Perhaps on another occasion, someone teaches that human beings are born innocent in the eyes of God. Which, by the way, you need to know... In a recent State of Theology report, which com- comes out, uh, came out back in the fall, these results were released. You can read it on Ligonier's website. State of Theology report. 71% of adults in America believe this. They believe that human beings are born innocent in the eyes of God. So how would we determine whether or not that claim is true. We go to God's Word. There's a lot of passages I could use, but I'll just use Romans 3 as one. Verses 10 and 11. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. That's one of many passages that we could flip through in God's Word to determine that the belief that human beings are born innocent in the eyes of God is in fact false. And yet 71% of people in our country believe that to be true. So as you read God's word, the Holy Spirit confirms and supports the teachings of the Bible and gives you the confidence that what you are reading is in fact truth. The Holy Spirit, listen closely, the Holy Spirit will never lead you to believe or do something that contradicts God's word. It will not happen. So we should think long and hard before we throw the Holy Spirit into these conversations and we speak very casually and loosely about Him because He will never lead you to do something that contradicts what God's Word says. David Platt did a masterful teaching series some years ago on the Holy Spirit. Here's what he said. He said, if we disregard the Word and jump into the realm of experience with the Spirit, so that we attribute everything to the Spirit, but we leave the Word behind, we will be led into delusions that are not what the Scriptures intend. Without the Spirit, we are dead, he says. But without the Word, we are deluded. So, be weary of any teaching that emphasizes the Spirit without also emphasizing the Word. They are not at odds with one another. They are always in unity together. John reminds his readers in verse 21 that he is writing to them because they know the truth. So this verse is actually supposed to serve as an encouragement to the Christians who did not depart from the faith. And join the false teachers. It's just as important to be reminded of the truth when you already believe the truth as it is to be reminded of the truth when you are led astray. This is why every single Sunday we try to be very intentional about rehearsing, saying, singing, praying the truth of the gospel. It's not just a one-time decision to believe the gospel. 
It's a daily reminder of what God has done for us. Through the sending of His Son, no lie is of the truth, John tells his audience here. This means that what the true believers knew about Jesus was not a lie because it was part of the apostolic truth that had been passed down to them from John and the other disciples. So, remember, the Holy Spirit is in fact your helper, your advocate, not only in convicting you of sin and helping you understand righteousness, but also to help you discern false teaching that might exist within the context in which you live. But number three, we should all leave today being comfortable confessing this truth that we are to submit to the authority of God's word. The liars in 1 John were those that were denying, as you know, that Jesus was the Christ. People that deny that Jesus was the Messiah who came to save his people from their sins. John calls them liars. Whether they be in John's context or even in our present day context, they are liars. And a lot of people throughout history have believed lots of good things about Jesus. They have believed that he is a great teacher. They have believed that he is a miracle worker. They have believed that he was a wise sage. But that's not all Jesus was. Primarily, he was the Messiah, the one who came to save his people from their sins. John calls these people in his context the Antichrists. It's not a reference to the Antichrist, but one of the many Antichrists who were propagating false teaching in the early church. These people are liars, John says, Antichrists, and by denying that Jesus was God in the flesh, John says they're also denying God the Father. The Bible identifies God the Father, God the Son, and the Spirit. It's impossible, John says, to deny Jesus as God in the flesh, as the Christ, without also denying the Father, because the Father eternally begets the Son. There's no relationship that is possible with a holy God apart from an acknowledgement and confession that Jesus is God's Son in the flesh, the divine Son of God. And He is the one who redeems us to give us relationship to a holy God. Hebrews 9, it's a good reminder. Verse 15, Therefore, He is the mediator, the author of Hebrews tells us. We say the author of Hebrews because we don't know who the author was. Therefore, He is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. So verse 23 goes on to re-emphasize what verse 22 just said. Denying the Son means you do not have the Father. But he ends this passage, thankfully, on a positive note. He says those that confess the Son have the Father Also, 
Remember, these false teachers were claiming to have fellowship with God. John is saying, no, you do not have fellowship with God because you do not believe that Jesus was God in the flesh. Look at back to chapter 1, verse 6 of 1 John. Here's what he said. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. No fellowship with God is ever possible without proper belief of who Jesus was and what he accomplished in his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension, and his return. Jesus is the one who came as God in the flesh to die the sins of his people and was resurrected three days later for their justification. So we must all submit to the authority of God's word. We do not have the right to change what God's word says. We do not have the right to make it align more with what will make us happy or what will make us feel comfortable or what will make our children or our grandchildren feel more comfortable. We don't have the right to do it. We must appeal to the authority of God's word. The term for this is the self-attestation of scripture. It's a big word. Here's what it means. That the scriptures bear witness in various ways that they are the true word of God. In other words, Christians must believe and obey the word of God because God wrote it. And we know God wrote it because the Bible tells us so. So the question that we have to pose today. Number one, non-Christians in the room. Have you confessed faith in Jesus Christ? Because the teaching of this passage is clear. You cannot have a relationship with God the Father unless you confess that Jesus is Lord. Do you understand your sinfulness before a holy God? Do you believe that Jesus came as God in the flesh to die the death that you deserved for your sin so that if you will repent of your sin and believe in faith, you can be reconciled to a holy God? Have you turned from your sin and trusted in Christ's finished work? If not, I invite you to do so. Turn to Christ. Come find me, one of our pastors, Many of our faithful church members after the service. We would love to talk with you about how you can come to faith in Christ. But Christians, there's a reminder for us today too. And that reminder, very simply, is to rejoice. Rejoice that Jesus took your sin on himself. Died the death that you deserved. So that every time you go to the Lord in prayer, you can believe without a shadow of a doubt that God, your Father, hears you. And He only hears you because you put your faith in His Son. That is worth screaming from the rooftops today. That when we approach the God of the universe, if we are in Christ, He hears our prayers. He actually cares what I say to Him. Praise God for Jesus. Never, ever, ever get used to the gospel. Rehearse it. Meditate on it. Get excited about it. Think about it as much as you possibly can. D.A. Carson, in one of his 
book says this, to focus on Jesus' teaching while making the cross peripheral reduces the glorious good news of the gospel to mere religion. The joy of forgiveness to mere ethical conformity. The highest motives for obedience to mere duty. And the result, he says, is disastrous. The gospel is not a system that you adhere to so that you can have success in the eyes of the world. The gospel is the good news of someone who loved you so much that he died for your sin so that you could be reconciled to a holy God and have eternal life forever with the God of the universe. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you now continue to speak through your word? It is your word alone that has the power to transform hearts. It is your word alone that convicts of sin. So God, my prayer is to simply ask you to continue to work in our hearts as we respond now to the proclamation of your word. In Christ's name, amen.